Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Dr. Cronin. Welcome to the Asia Initiative Lecture Series. My name is Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asia Initiative Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. For those who are new to the Institute of War Politics, IWP is a graduate school of statecraft, national security, international affairs, and intelligence. We have a doctor program as well as five master's programs and 18 certificates of graduate study and a continuing education program. The objective of, of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have Dr. Patrick Cronin, who will be presenting a lecture on his, on his report, Fear and Insecurity Addressing North Korean Threat Perceptions. Dr. Cronin is the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Huston Institute. Dr. Cronin's research program analyzes the challenges and opportunities confronting the United States in the Indo-Pacific region, including China's total comp competition campaign, the future of the Korean Peninsula, and strengthening U.S. alliances and partnerships. Dr. Cronin was previously Senior Advisor and Senior Director of the Asia-Pacific Security Ch Program at the Center for a New American Security, CNAS, and before that, Senior Director of the Institute for National Strategic Studies, INSS, at the National Defense University, where he simultaneously oversaw the Center for the Study of Chinese Military Affairs. Prior to leading INSS, Dr. Cronin served as the Director of the Studies at the London-based International Institute for Strategic Studies, IISS. At IISS, he also served as editor of the Adelphi Papers and as the executive director of the Armed Conflict Database. Before joining IISS, Dr. Cronin was senior vice president and director of research at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS. Dr. Cronin, thank you very much for joining us today, and I'll hand it over to you. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for that kind introduction and for the opportunity to address uh, the Institute of World Politics uh, online and welcome to everyone listening to this program. Uh, I've been asked to speak for uh, quite a while, uh, up to an hour, and, uh, and then to go into questions and answers. And I wanna draw on my uh, recent research, which was made possible in, in part by a grant from the Korea Foundation to whom I'm very grateful for the ability to look in depth and have conversations with many experts around the world, especially in Korea and the United States. Um, the topic uh, I wanna talk about really gets to this incongruous uh, reality. That is, we have an impoverished, heavily sanctioned North Korea in possession of tens of nuclear weapons that can be fitted to long range missiles capable of striking US allies and even the US homeland. That doesn't seem like it should be possible, but this is an enduring reality that policymakers have to grapple with. In fact, this week, the Director of National Intelligence in the United States issued an annual threat assessment asserting that, quote, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un may take a number of aggressive and potentially destabilizing actions to reshape the regional security environment and drive wedges between the United States and its allies up to and including the resumption of nuclear weapons 
in intercontinental ballistic missile ICBM testing, unquote. Indeed, some analysts see key anniversaries such as April 15th, that's tomorrow, known as the Day of the Sun, the anniversary of the birth of founder Kim Il-sung, he would have been 109, uh, as another potential window for a major provocation. But regardless of whether there's a missile launch on the 15th of April, the ODNI assesses this threat to be an enduring one. Quote, Kim Jong-un views nuclear weapons as the ultimate deterrent against foreign intervention. And he believes that over time, he will gain international acceptance and respect as a nuclear power. He probably does not view the current level of pressure on his regime as enough to require a fundamental change in its approach, unquote. So my presentation today is neither to depart from this intelligence assessment nor to predict the timing of Kim's re regime's uh, next moves or provocations. Instead, drawing on my report, Fear and Insecurity, Addressing North Korean Threat Perceptions, I wanna sift through parts of the past 71 years in an effort to understand the Kim family's thinking about the use and threat of use of military force. So before I do that, let me say a few words about threat assessments, uh, and then let me talk about the range of threats that could be on the minds of North Korea's leadership, especially Kim Jong-un today. Um, and then I'll go through what I call seven uh, political military campaigns that help crystallize our thinking about the Kim family's threats of force over time. And then finally, I'll make a few observations and open it up to questions and talk about more current affairs. Now, threat assessments are crucial for strategy and policy. Indeed, that's why the ODNI just issued its annual threat assessment. It helps inform strategy and policy, whether you're in Congress or executive branch or an ally. Understanding Kim family fears and insecurity is essential for effective deterrence and defense, averting strategic surprise, being ready for it should it occur. But it's also vital for diplomacy. If you're aiming to coerce Pyongyang or persuade Pyongyang into a modicum of cooperative behavior, it helps to know what threats he has in mind, the regime has in mind. But to explain how threat assessments inform policy, let me step back and discuss the making of national security strategy briefly. A coherent national security strategy begins with clear and realistic written objectives. If aims are vague, it will be difficult to concentrate resources and mobilize others around a common cause. Similarly, if a nation's goals are too ambitious and surpass the prospects or means for success, then the national security strategy represents wishful thinking and will likewise be difficult to carry out. So what is needed is a serious attempt to grapple with the world as it is, as it exists, and to harmonize a nation's crucial ends with existing means. This is a lot easier said than done. So when I criticize administration strategies, if it sounds like I'm criticizing, believe me, I have a lot of respect for the people who have worked on these documents. Uh, but because war and peace involve international relations between two or more actors, national goals must consider other actors' core interests, concerns, and aspirations. We have to know what does Kim want? Preventing conflict and securing peace may depend or, on considering Kim's interests, especially when dealing with an adversary like North Korea. Consider the declassified Trump administration's desired end state for North Korea as a country that, quote, no longer poses a threat to the U.S. homeland or our allies, unquote, with the Korean Peninsula 
free of nuclear, chemical, cyber, and biological weapons, unquote. That's a fantastic vision. I wish we could make that happen. <laughs> but those are aspirations that are beyond the reach of diplomacy, I would argue. And as a result, once you put those down on paper, as they did, they became, they should have become subject to many questions about whether that was a realistic strategy. So we have to think about ways to achieve our goals. The Trump administration's objective was to exert what they called maximum pressure to convince the Kim regime that the only path to its survival is to relinquish its nuclear weapons. The likelihood of attaining that goal, a multi-decade aim of convincing North Korea to abandon nuclear weapons, hinges on the value that the North Korean regime attaches to nuclear weapons. And unfortunately, the North Korean regime attaches a very high value to, North, to nuclear weapons. So as the ODNI assessment suggests this week, there should be no doubt that the Kim family treasures its nuclear weapons. But awareness of this point is not enough. US policy must rest on the more accurate and complete view of North Korean threat perceptions. As the Biden administration conducts a policy review, they're almost done, to devise a new approach, one enduring challenge remains to have a sound grasp of North Korea's thinking. Now, conventional wisdom holds that regime survival is the ruling Kim family's paramount goal. If that is so, it is almost inconceivable that Kim would peacefully relinquish nuclear weapons to deter foreign military intervention. But Kim's other significant interests, such as economic power and North Korean modernization, suggest there is at least diplomatic opportunity to reduce the risk of war on the peninsula, if not necessarily eliminate nuclear weapons anytime soon. A combination of security guarantees, finance and development assistance, and political measures could lead to diplomatic progress with Pyongyang, perhaps even to what might in retrospect be seen as a breakthrough. Finding this Goldilocks solution, if it exists, of not too hot, not too cold, but just right, requires understanding not just the fears, but also the dreams of Kim Jong-un. And even if Kim Jong-un refuses meaningful, me meaningful restraints on his nuclear and missile programs in exchange for diplomatic normalization steps, delving into Kim's thinking about threats can inform policy. So it's still useful to know what Kim wants, even if he's not going to make concessions. If the status quo is the best that can be achieved, the knowledge of how Kim and North Korean elites perceive threats can help allies exert pressure to preserve deterrence and stability. Knowledge of how the Kim family perceives threats can also inform conflict prevention and crisis management, and there will be more conflicts, or at least crises, on the peninsula. And while it may be impossible to placate Kim, a solid grasp of North Korean threat perceptions can avert the crossing of red lines that would trigger unnecessary or catastrophic use of force. The danger of escalation must also consider geography, history, the state of international relations, raising questions about the role of other actors, and much more. But we cannot ignore the fact that war and peace in Northeast Asia could come down to the basic instincts, the basic precepts of the third generation Kim family leadership in Pyongyang. So building an accurate picture of North Korean threat perceptions is challenging, but I think doable. North Korea is a totalitarian society with tight control over information. Consider how little we still understand about the extent of the coronavirus in North Korea. Yet advances in technology and decades of US experience with North Korea, including high-level diplomacy with leaders, members of the Korean Workers' Party and the Korean People's Army, have demystified the Hermit Kingdom. And addressing threat perceptions requires gathering reliable information, sifting through a range of suppositions 
enumerating probabilities. And now we have a seven decade plus record of war and cold war on the Korean Peninsula on which to draw. Even so, humility is needed when trying to separate North Korean fact from fiction. After all, the North Koreans appear as determined as ever to deploy and modernize a military arsenal that includes nuclear-tipped ICBMs that can strike the US. And Kim's rationale for his nuclear program is undoubtedly to promote political objectives, such as preventing regime change from either within or without, so that he can unlock economic development, retain power for decades. But just because Kim focuses on political goals, that doesn't mean he lacks even grander plans or other ambitions. So even if the Kim regime were entirely transparent, it is not easy to view a traditional enemy without prejudice. Assessing an adversary requires overcoming cognitive bias based on our emotion, our entrenched views, our experience. This applies to me as much as anybody. Neither the Kim family and its cadre of elite advisors nor decision makers within the United States and South Korea are impervious to the profound dynamics, political and psychological, explicit and implicit, that produce confirmation bias. And further, judging another's actors, another actor's threat perception requires possessing an objective sense of oneself. An objective sense of oneself. This is something our intelligence community is seldom asked to do, <laughs> to talk about an objective assessment of the United States. But it's an elementary part of uh, strategy. The requirement harkens back, in fact, to the classical Chinese aphorism of Sunzi, who said, he who knows the enemy and himself will never in a hundred battles be at risk. So it's not enough to know the threats of Kim Jong-un. We also have to understand ourselves well, as well as the dynamics of the region, to be able to get a full picture of what to expect and how we can approach diplomacy and defense. So let me just talk briefly about some of the fears and insecurities that may reside within the Kim family. Because I would argue that the Kim family has as much or maybe even more to fear internally than it does objectively from an external intervention from the United States, South Korea, at least in the 2020s. A decade into his reign, Kim Jong-un has consolidated his power. He's built an armed force capable of deterring outside military intervention. We're deterred. We don't want to intervene in North Korea. We might have to, but we don't want to. And Kim declared his nuclear program to have been completed in late 2017. We believe it. He has a nuclear weapon program, even if he's not a, an accepted nuclear power. Nevertheless, the North Korean leader began this year, January, the Eighth Party Congress, with a pledge to modernize and refine North Korea's arsenal by building tactical nuclear weapons and hypersonic gliding flight warheads. Possessing growing space and cyberspace capabilities armed with unknown amounts of chemical and biological weapons and defended by a large conventional force and elite special forces, North Korea is exceptionally disciplined and a dangerous military power. But toward what end? It appears deterred from using lethal force for fear of igniting a war it would lose. Indeed, accumulating a uniquely lethal strategic arsenal, both the Kim family and the North Korean elite despite accumulating a uniquely lethal strategic arsenal, that is, both the Kim family and the North Korean elite in general appear fearful of both domestic and foreign threats. Now, Kim's expanded appetite for strategic weapons suggests North Korea's arms buildup is not solely based on hostile external forces. Beyond deterring foreign attempts at regime change, these programs enhance North Korea's status, solidify Kim's domestic power 
credibility, provide negotiating leverage, and bolster his military plans. His commitment to further strengthening our nuclear deterrence, quote unquote, affirmed at a party Congress in January, may be based on pride, given that Kim boasts that his weapons represent, quote, the exploit of greatest significance in the history of the Korean nation, unquote. But the acquisition of armaments also appears to be based on fear, as Kim dubbed America our foremost principal enemy. It is tempting to dismiss North Korean official media complaints about foreign forces operating on and around the peninsula as pure propaganda. But from the perspective of General Secretary Kim, he now has that title, the fear of a sudden decapitation strike is not without foundation. In early 2020, the United States used a drone in the targeted killing of Major General Qasem Soleimani, commander of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force. The Kim regime might, be, might see assaults on critical infrastructure as even more likely than assassination by drone. Still, it is challenging to separate Kim's legitimate fears of US military intervention from his offensive, offensive goals. Although US forces could help Kim balance relations with China, Kim wishes to dislodge the United States from the peninsula, thereby removing the most significant impediment to his ambitions. He doesn't want to be hindered by US military power. He wants it back in the homeland of the United States so he can uh, prey upon uh, sort of South Korea if it's willing to be preyed upon. One can discern both fear and longing in Kim's remarks in January that place priority on subduing and defeating the United States, our biggest enemy, and the main obstacle to our revolutionary developments. Kim and North Korea's ruling elite probably remain on edge over American and ROK US military power. They should. They're likely to remain so even if North Korea fields a nuclear inventory similar to that of Pakistan. And Pakistan is thought to possess more than 120 nuclear warheads and on its way to doubling that inventory over the next several years in order to deter India's superior. I'm one of Beijing's foremost security and economic partners. Is this worry about the Jin plotted a coup and six core commander the Sixth Corps commander uncovered the conspiracy leading to the execution of at least two dozen officers and state officials. As a result of the attempted insurrection and coup plot, the Korean People's Army purged and disbanded the Sixth Corps. Another episode admittedly more ambiguous occurred in April of 2004 when two trains carrying chemicals exploded at a station on China's border. The North Korean government announced that some 154 people had been killed. More than 1,300 people were injured. The media did not report that Kim Jong-il apparently had been saved because he had disembarked the train before the station. Another interesting fact is that Kim soon after that confiscated all mobile telephones, including those used by officials. So factionalism and political schism, a military coup d'etat, economic failure, and over time, general ideological contamination 
are also potential challenges to Kim's legitimacy, power, and life, although perceptions of vulnerabilities fluctuate. Invisible biological and chemical threats could arise naturally, for example, from the COVID-19 pandemic, or be delivered by clandestine means, as in Kim's use of VX nerve agent to kill his half-brother, or Russian intelligence services' use of poison to eliminate perceived enemies of the state. The tyranny that Kim Jong-un inherited a decade ago is a system built on a family personality cult in which the organization and guidance department, the OGD, is the part of the state that sees and knows everything. The OGD was central to Kim Jong-il's consolidation of power, and it remains a vital institution for Kim Jong-un's internal control and understanding of external threats and opportunities. So external and internal threats may be mutually reinforcing, in fact. In international sanctions, blockades, or other measures to strangle North Korea's economy would promote instability and undoubtedly undermine Kim's standing at home. Information and cyber operations may foment distrust of senior officials, initiate a power struggle, or even trigger a coup attempt or terror attack. Conversely, offering North Korea economic or information programs that challenge a closed system could end up as so-called poison carrots that plant the seeds of subversive ideas or spread general ideological contamination against the Kim family, the party, or even the state. With the 2017 assassination of Kim Jong-nam, reportedly a CIA informant and plausible bloodline successor, according to the press, North Korea may have eliminated the leadership's main external threat. But external support for another senior figure inside North Korea, such as Kim's sister, could be seen as a direct threat to Kim's legitimacy. In sum, the roster of internal security threats would seem to warrant greater fear from the Kim family than external threats, but no doubt he fears both of them. It's also possible that Kim's near absolute authority may offset these concerns or not. Great power involves great responsibility, said Franklin D. Roosevelt, but for autocrats, great power involves great paranoia. So let me turn to the seven military, political military campaigns that I think help define how the Kim family, all three Kim leaders, have thought about the use or threat of the use of force. And we do have a 71-year record here. I think, let me just skip down to these campaigns and skip with some of the background on this. The first and most aggressive campaign involved a surprise conventional military offensive to unify the peninsula by force. So this was by far the most aggressive campaign by definition, 1950, the Korean War. In launching the Korean War, Kim Il-sung, he convinced Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong that South Korean troops were ill-prepared, they were, and that the United States would lack the political fortitude to fight a new foreign war. That was wrong. Kim's gamble almost succeeded. Holding on to the Pusan perimeter on South Korea's southeastern tip, the Eighth Army lasted long enough for reinforcements to arrive. North Korea might have succeeded, but Kim Il-sung underestimated U.S. determination to defend South Korea. Partly, this was a failure to understand that Washington would view the aggression not as a local war, but as a proxy war in a burgeoning Cold War against communist powers in Moscow and Beijing. North Korea's setback forced China to intervene, but both Beijing and Washington settled for a stalemate. The Chinese intervention demonstrated both the escalatory dangers of force and major power aversion to initiating direct major power conflict. In the end, China ensured North Korea would survive, but no more than that. The war settled into a deadlock in 1951, and the use of force after that occurred amid the backdrop of protracted efforts to negotiate a truce. Once Kim Il-sung unleashed war, North Koreans suffered immensely. 
the United States was determined to muster as much muscle as possible to punish aggression and end the conflicts, conflict on favorable terms. Particularly terrifying was the so-called indiscriminate targeting of population centers from the air, as North Korea put it, which would leave a profound impression on North Korea. The dropping of some 650,000 tons of bombs on North Korea left an indelible mark on the leadership. And North Korea's one-sided reporting of the war's horrors, regardless of whether they were fabricated or embellished, became part of the Kim family narrative and were unquestioned by the North Korean people. So among the unintended consequences of the Korean War, there were three lessons. First, North Korea learned that it is unwise to engage a superior conventional military power in a confrontation, even when with an element of surprise. Second, Pyongyang saw it was easier for the United States to feign potential use of nuclear weapons than to actually use them. Over time, America's growing nuclear arsenal would appear even more of a paper tiger. But the United States was not only self-deterred from breaking the post-war nuclear taboo, it was also deterred by North Korea, whose third lesson was the immense deterrent value of nuclear weapons. Any country possessing nuclear weapons might prevent an attack from outside powers, including the United States. This final lesson was important not just for the founder of the DPRK, but also for his son and perhaps even more so for his grandson, Kim Jong-un. The discovery of North Korea's nuclear program in 1984 nevertheless came as a surprise and has been called the longest running intelligence failure in the history of American espionage. Let me turn to the second campaign and move faster through the seventh campaign, uh, which will take us to the present. In, this, in the mid-1960s, early 1970s, North Korea embarked on a second political military campaign to destabilize South Korea and produce forceful unification while simultaneously raising barriers to U.S. intervention. So unlike the Korean War bid, the first campaign, which used conventional military force, the second campaign relied on covert operations, commando raids, and more aggressive coastal and air defense action. With the United States and South Korea committed to fighting in Vietnam, North Korea saw heightened vulnerability within South Korea's autocratic Park Chung-hee government and questioned America's political support. If Ho Chi Minh could wage a people's war in Southeast Asia, why couldn't the Kim regime instigate a guerrilla insurgency on the peninsula? American conventional military power might be caught in a quagmire, unable to achieve victory, even if not beaten on the battlefield. A guerrilla campaign gradually exposed the limited U.S. political will to fight and its allies' political weaknesses. North Korea saw that it could raise U.S. forces' costs engaged in routine surveillance operations near or over the peninsula. Kim Il-sung felt threatened by U.S. naval and air operations on North Korea's periphery, and it may have concluded that North Korea's partners in Moscow and Beijing wouldn't object to attempts to prevent the U.S. from conducting intrusive surveillance missions. This backstory explains why the Kim regime embarked on a second campaign to achieve its ambitious unification goals on North Korean terms. In this second campaign, the most daring resort to force was the commando raid on the South Korean presidential residence, the Blue House, to assassinate President Park and throw the country into chaos. And two days later, a U.S. spy ship operating just outside North Korean waters was taken hostage. Now, the preparation required to make a serious assault on South Korea's government seat was long in the making. The commandos conducting the Blue House raid were part of Unit 124, Special Forces Unit established two years earlier and very likely inspired by North Korea's insurgency and guerrilla operations. The mission 
planning included exercising on a mock-up of the presidential residence before 31 commandos slipped across the demilitarized zone around midnight on January 17, 1968. And just before 10 p.m. on January 21, four days later, as the commandos came within a few hundred meters of the Blue House, South Korean police demanded documents from the soldiers who claimed to be a South Korean counterintelligence command unit returning from training. Gunfire ensued. 27 of the commandos were killed either at the scene or attempting to escape to North Korea. One soldier managed to return to North Korea. He would rise to be a four-star general in the North Korean military. One commando was captured but died by suicide. Another survived, served time, and lives in Seoul under a false name. And the fate of the 31st soldier remains unknown. Meanwhile, some 31 South Korean soldiers and police officers and five civilians were killed, and more than 50 people were wounded, including three American soldiers. The failed Blue House raid was not the last time North Korea attempted a decapitation strike on South Korea's president, but the inability to ignite a revolution dampened Kim Il-sung's enthusiasm for achieving unification by armed force, even if that dream carried on into the 1980s. Indeed, even if that dream may exist somewhere today in Kim Jong-un's mind, it's lost a lot of its luster. If the Blue House raid made the Kim regime more cautious about the use of force, the USS Pueblo incident offered different lessons. So on January 23, 1968, North Korean patrol boats seized USS Pueblo, a U.S. Navy intelligence ship, in international waters off Wonsong and took all 83 crew members hostage. Secretary of State Dean Russ called the incident a matter of the utmost gravity. Still, the subsequent lack of a military reprisal probably taught the North Koreans that they could commit brazen coercive acts without necessarily facing punishment. Above all, U.S. decision makers viewed the Pueblo seizure through the prism of Vietnam policy and not primarily as an inter-Korean conflict. For the Johnson administration, the capture of a virtually unarmed intelligence vessel was a gambit to divert U.S. attention from the Vietnam War, sap America's political will, and dampen its appetite for embarking on another East Asian conflict. Combined with other forceful actions in the name of defending sovereignty, North Korea warned the new Nixon administration that it risked war should it begin escorting reconnaissance planes. The threat came after a North Korean shootdown of an EC-121 naval reconnaissance plane on April 15, 1969, which was Kim Il-sung's birthday. The incident killed all 31 U.S. crew members, yet North Korea went on the political offensive, demanding all American troops withdraw from the peninsula. The lethal provocation caught U.S. officials unprepared because they had difficulty identifying North Korea's serious threats when they were intermingled among strings of empty bluster. That event and subsequent North Korean raids across the demilitarized zone offered North Korea's leadership ideas about how to drive a wedge into the alliance in the future. Now, the trigger for North Korea's decision to resort to significant force, whether conventional or unconventional, appears to be a calculation about South Korean volatility how susceptible is South Korea to being in upheaval, if not revolution, and American hesitancy, the lack of political will to go to the defense of South Korea. At any rate, this calculation seems to have been made in both the first and the second campaigns involving major lethal force. In retrospect, these calculations by North Korea were wrong. Furthermore, Kim Il-sung knew that external aggression and internal aggression in the form of purges could strengthen his cult of personality and quash factionalism within North Korea. But it also seems true that perceptions of ROK and alliance weakness prompted deadly intervention from Pyongyang. 
So during the first three decades after the Korean War, from 1950 to about 1980, the Kim family was driven toward a vision of unification through revolution. Over the three decades after that, Pyongyang's aggression was driven more out of fear, I would argue. So let me turn to the third campaign, because North Korea's second campaign metamorphosed into a separate third campaign executed throughout the 70s and early 80s. Pyongyang demonstrated a close, closer ability to sync up its military actions with its diplomatic strategy. Low intensity attacks and even one more assassination attempt were part of an effort to continue inciting a revolution that might unify the peninsula. So the goals were still the same. They still wanted a revolution that could lead to unification, but they were lowering the temperature on what they were willing to risk to, to achieve it. So the short-term aim centered on probing weak links in the alliance and driving U.S. forces off the peninsula, adding momentum to America's retrenchment after the Vietnam War. North Korea turned up the pressure on its maritime frontier, escalating a dispute over five small but strategically located islands administered by South Korea in the West, or Yellow Sea. The islands had been used extensively to stage special operations during the Korean War. Following repeated threatening sailbys from North Korean gunboats, on December 1, 1973, North Korea abruptly claimed territorial sovereignty over the islands, straddling the northern limit line, the NLL. That's the maritime demarcation line that the UN and US and ROK drew up. At the Military Armistice Commission in Panmunjom, North Korea announced that South Korean vessels would now need its permission to sail to waters around the five islands and the disputed NLL would spark even more lethal uses of force in 2002 and 2010, as I'll mention in a minute. South Korea's roiling democratic protest movement undoubtedly encouraged Kim, uh, Kim Il-sung, um, North Korea, to make another attempt on President Park's life on Liberation Day, August 15, 1974. As Park delivered a Liberation Day speech in a packed National Theater in Seoul, a bullet struck and killed his wife. Suspected North Korean agents may have used the confessed shooter, a Korean resident of Japan, to deepen distrust between South Koreans and the Japanese. In August 1976, North Korean soldiers killed two U.S. soldiers designed, uh, I'm sorry, assigned to chop down a poplar tree, blocking the United Nations Command Force's view of the military demarcation line in the DMZ. The axe murder incident, as it's been called, was considered pre-planned. It led the United States to order its nuclear forces to high alert DEFCON 3 and resulted in a rare major military response that could have escalated, Operation Paul Bunyan. It also embodied the kind of whiplash and sudden lurching from dialogue to belligerence and back again that came to characterize the standoff on the Korean Peninsula. But Operation Paul Bunyan was also the last time the United States and the ROK appeared unmistakably determined to use military force if necessary in the objective of cutting down a single 80-foot tree was one North Korean, one concession, if you will, that North Korea could accept. Although, according to one observer, the incident pushed the United States and North Korea closer to war than at any point since the 1953 armistice, that conclusion does not stand up to more critical thinking about Kim Il-sung's interests and intentions. The Allies understood North Korea was not interested in fighting another Korean war and the mobilization of a credible military force to achieve a limited goal reinforced deterrence rather than nearly triggering a war. It's an important calculation, but the point is showing strength fed deterrence and reinforced deterrence rather than the fear of triggering a war. 
North Korea's attempts to assert itself on its frontiers would continue, including an attempted shootdown of an SR-71 Blackbird strategic reconnaissance aircraft in international airspace over the Yellow Sea in 1981. But as time passed after Operation Paul Bunyan's convincing show of force, future American threats would gradually lose their credibility and capacity to provoke awe. North Korea's fourth campaign of force or threat of force was distinguished by terrorism, apparently reflecting Kim Jong-il's, I'm sorry, yes, Kim Jong, uh, it should say Kim Il-sung's, no, I'm sorry, it's reflecting Kim Jong-il's desire, the son who wasn't, had not yet taken over, but his desire to burnish his authority in Pyongyang because he saw himself succeeding his father eventually. Um, and so between 1983 and 1987, North Korean operatives made another assassination attempt on the South Korean president and on two occasions used bombs to disrupt international athletic competitions hosted by Seoul. In 1983, President Chun Doo-won led a sizable official delegation to Burma where he was set to lay a wreath at a shrine for martyrs killed in the 1947 fight for independence. The remotely controlled bombs planted by North Korean agents killed 17 South Koreans, including four cabinet members. Still, President Chun's life was spared because of a scheduling snafu and a late decision to allow his wife's delegation to arrive first. If the terror attack had aimed to strengthen Kim Jong-il's hand, it might have mattered little that North Korea had failed yet again to hit its primary target. However, the bombings had been designed to spoil South Korea's moment in the global spotlight as South Korea was expanding its influence in Southeast Asia. Three years later, a North Korean bomb ripped through Gempo Airport, killing five and injuring dozens as teams arrived for the 1986 Asian Games. In the following year, operatives used a bomb made with liquid explosives and a detonator to destroy KL-858 in midair on its way from Baghdad to Seoul, killing all 115 aboard the plane. Although the 1988 Summer Olympics were still months away, the terrorist attack on KL-858 appeared designed to sabotage Seoul's bid to host a successful Olympic event. So Kim Jong-il put his signature on the use of force in his fourth campaign even before he became the leader of North Korea. Because he appeared to care more about spectacle than revolution, the use of deadly force was administered with plausible deniability and minimal chance of an immediate punishing reprisal. The goal was to cripple South Korea's role in regional and world affairs. He failed. Indeed, the 1988 Summer Olympics followed the first democratic presidential election in South Korea, and the ROC was on the rise. At the same time, North Korea was about to face multiple setbacks, losing Cold War patronage, losing its founding leader, and dealing with the onset of famine and economic failure. So the 1990s would require a different approach to using force. In this decade, the 90s, saw the beginning of nuclear brinkmanship that survives right now to the 2020s. North Korea's fifth, sixth, and seventh campaigns elevated diplomacy and the military stakes to the highest level. Special envoys and summit level meetings became more routine in the past three decades, and throughout the entire period, nuclear weapons loomed large. But these campaigns are distinct from one another and in some significant ways, so let me just briefly go through them. The fifth campaign coincided with Kim Jong-il's rise to power and continued until he suffered a severe stroke in 2008. After the Soviet Union's dissolution, Kim Il-sung negotiated historic North-South agreements that promised both non-aggression and denuclearization. Both of these agreements were violated and tested in the months and years to follow, and yet they still stand as beacons for a more hopeful future. The 1993-94 nuclear crisis may have represented the most intense period during which the United States contemplated a preemptive strike 
on the Yongbyon nuclear facility and the North Korean nascent nuclear weapon program. The Kim family was concerned about its survival at the end of the Cold War, as the end of the Cold War disrupted its great power patronage, and the loss of that patronage accelerated the breakdown of the public distribution system. The economy fell apart. With Kim Jong-il's substantial influence could also help, but Kim Jong-il's substantial influence could also help Pyongyang's truculence before reaching a U.S.-North Korean agreed framework in 1994. Indeed, the second Kim, Kim Jong-il, reverted to nuclear brinkmanship throughout this time uh, when he was party chairman. Although Kim adopted a policy of military first politics, he acted more out of fear and weakness than confidence and strength. Kim Il-sung had lost long thought that South Korea was susceptible to revolution and the United States was short on resolution. Still, the United States and South Korea now began to underestimate the Kim regime's staying power in the first two decades after the Cold War. So South Korea and the United States were stronger, but we somehow thought that North Korea was about to be toppled very quickly and that was a miscalculation in part of Seoul and Washington, or at least parts of it. Kim rebuffed the George W. Bush administration when confronted with evidence that North Korea had been circumventing the agreed framework with a covert, highly enriched uranium HEU processing program. In the first decade of this century, Kim Jong-il oscillated between threatening to punish the United States and seeking top-level meetings, including North-South summits in 2000 and 2007, and between pledging to denuclearize and promising to become a permanent nuclear weapon state, promises that North Korea has since backed off of. North Korean threats were used primarily defensively, though, to constrain outside pressure. After all, the George W. Bush administration employed its version of what was later dubbed maximum pressure by exploiting the 9-11 environment. So you recall the 2002 State of the Union address <clears throat> singled out North Korea as part of an axis of evil. And following the Iraq invasion in 2003, there was an implicit threat that shock and awe might be coming to Pyongyang. As U.S. forces became bogged down in intractable stability operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, the danger of the U.S. military attack was supplanted by a ratcheting up of economic pressure. So a wide-ranging illicit activities initiative culminated in a powerful demonstration of financial measures. In September 2005, the U.S. Treasury Department employed the USA Patriot Act Section 311 to designate the Macau-based Banco Delta Asia <clears throat> as a primary money laundering concern, quote-unquote, triggering a run on the small bank and compelling Chinese authorities to freeze <clears throat> $25 million in North Korean funds. Bad actors have a way of circumventing pressure, pressure as North Korea's first nuclear test in 2006 might suggest. So the effect of the freeze was short-lived. <clears throat> now, the sixth military, political military campaign, which featured new threats and uses of force, lasted from about 2010 until 2016. By 2009, President Obama's inauguration, the United States was mired in two foreign insurgencies. Kim Jong-il was convalescing from a stroke, and Kim Jong-un needed to burnish his credentials as the successor to his father. The third Kim had big ambitions and saw new opportunities. He wanted to advance North Korea's arsenal of nuclear weapons and missiles, and the testing of both was accelerated. Kim was willing to risk using lethal limited force to send a signal to South Korea and hopefully drive a wedge between Seoul and a war-weary Washington. And he was ready to go beyond past unconventional warfare by using a wider assortment of tools, including surprise attacks with limited force, 
cyber attack and the murder of relatives, specifically the use of VX nerve agent to assassinate his half brother who represented a rare potential threat to his power. Diplomacy was also part of the motivation for these actions, although for the most part, that would wait until the end of 2017. During this sixth campaign, there were no summit meetings, but plenty of incidents. Notably, North Korea during this period used deadly force twice in the sinking of the South Korean Corvette on patrol near the Northern Limit Line and with the shelling of Yanpyeong Island, both in 2010. North Korea also scuttled an early deal with the United States that had been under discussion before Kim Jong-il's death in December 2011. Although Kim Jong-un initially accepted this leap day agreement, as it was called, to freeze nuclear missile testing, he quickly proceeded to violate the spirit of the accord by announcing his intention to launch a satellite. And so Kim, the great successor and the young general, soon sought to establish his credentials as a bigger, badder, and bolder dictator. Kim Jong-un proceeded to deploy intermediate-range ballistic missiles capable of striking U.S. targets and threatening merciless attacks in 2013. His cyber attack on Sony Pictures in 2014, occurring before Sony could release a comedy about Kim's assassination, demonstrated that his regime was willing to met out costly penalties for those mocking the Kim family. And a landmine incident that maimed two South Korean soldiers on patrol again demonstrated Kim's desire to walk to the brink of conflict, buoyed by a reasonable degree of confidence that the United States and South Korea would be more risk averse for fear of escalation. The seventh campaign under Kim Jong-un was on full display in 2017 and 2018, followed by more circumspection and nuclear buildup since then. There is no need to recount this recent ground. Suffice it to say that Kim went all out to acquire an ICBM capability early in the Trump administration. Although Bong Jin was the policy of simultaneous nuclear and economic development, Kim was sequencing the nuclear buildup before cashing in on economic development. The Trump administration responded with maximum pressure, but pressure aimed at persuading Kim that he didn't need nuclear weapons and that nuclear weapons didn't make North Korea safer. U.S. threats of a limited strike, or a bloody nose, as some put it, were reciprocated with creative and vitriolic propaganda from North Korea. But the Trump administration sought to escalate to catalyze diplomacy. The goal was to compel Kim to choose diplomacy and give up his nuclear insurance to bring about a brighter economic future for his country. Kim had a different idea. He would become a permanent nuclear weapon state and then sue for peace on his terms. Now, National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, who worked to develop a realistic strategy for convincing Kim to trade in nuclear weapons for diplomacy, later described, quote, the cycle of North Korean provocation, feigned conciliation, negotiation, extortion, concession, promulgation of a weak agreement, and the inevitable violation of that agreement, unquote, a cycle that, in his view, actually encouraged North Korea's aggression. Trump's threat of fire and fury was part of this strategy to pressure Kim Jong-un to the negotiating table. President Obama had warned Trump about the danger of North Korea acquiring an operational ICBM. Kim conducted his country's sixth and largest apparently hydrogen nuclear test in September of 2017. Trump let McMaster know that Pyongyang should first feel the consequences of its actions before being offered a diplomatic off-ramp. And at the end of November 2017, Kim declared he had achieved his military goals, presumably a workable ICBM, and was now prepared for diplomacy. So the U.S.-Chinese assessments variously judged North Korea's November 2017 nuclear test 
and missile tests of the, the test of the Hwasong-15 ICBM to have demonstrated a capability to reach the United States and to be North's, quote, first real ICBM. Now, North-South summits raised expectations of a breakthrough and the dream that a armistice regime would soon be replaced with a peace regime. The Singapore summit held in June 2018 and the first effort between a sitting U.S. president and the North Korean leader offered a general outline for future diplomacy, establish new political relations, build a peace regime, work toward denuclearization, and continue repatriation of POW missing in action remains. A moratorium on nuclear and long-range missile testing, as well as a reduction of U.S. ROK military drills, was the main tangible action, a result of the at times frenetic diplomacy that followed. The dream of a peaceful denuclearized peninsula was put on hold when President Trump and President Kim Jong-un left Hanoi, however, in early 2019 without a deal or further talks planned. And the failed Hanoi summit remains a cul-de-sac for diplomacy with North Korea. U.S.-North Korean talks foundered during the remainder of the Trump administration, and North-South diplomacy has remained dormant too, as President Moon enters his final year in office. While the Biden administration is completing its nu nuclear, uh, its North Korea policy review, it's already made clear that it intends to keep denuclearization at the center of its approach, although we can talk about that. North Korea has slammed the idea as fantasy. So given that Kim Jong-un has greeted the Biden administration with a pledge to build up its nuclear force, even further, might North Korea be embarking on an eighth campaign? Will it look like the seventh campaign or the sixth or one of the earlier campaigns or be something new? So beyond more missile launches, how can Kim Jong-un combine missiles, nuclear weapons, diplomacy to preserve his treasure deterrent while dismantling the sanctions regime that limits development? I think that's the question that Kim Jong-un has been working on in his own internal review. So in closing here, before we open for questions, let me just sort of try to offer some takeaways from some of this research. And there are many more ideas and insights that I've drawn from this sort of continuum of thinking about the use or threat of force out of the Kim regime in Pyongyang over these past 71 years. Uh, the first one is that the regime is, is never stopped moving forward to pursue weapons of mass destruction. So Kim Jong-un is poised to, to further strengthen his regime's nuclear security and systems. I think this is what the ODNI assessment said this week. I, I've said it in this report. Uh, many others have said it. It's not a surprise. It's, it shows how difficult it is to try to force North Korea to take a step in a different direction than it's been going on now for decades in terms of trying to refine and achieve uh, a nuclear weapon status. So. This is their asymmetric escalation strategy. Um, Kim Jong-un's threat of preemptive first use uh, aims to make the idea of US and allied military intervention unthinkable. In cyber and electronic warfare or drone attack on Kim's nuclear command and control infrastructure may be one way to think about preventing a nuclear attack in a crisis with North Korea. However, far from being ready to abandon nuclear weapons, Kim Jong-un is poised to refine them and further strengthen, in fact, exactly those aspects of his command and control system. He's strengthening to secure communications, command and control, to ensure that they are not susceptible to the kind of sabotage that we just saw, for instance, in Natanz, Iran, uh, setting back the centrifuges in the, in the sort of HEU program uh, in Iran. So North Korea has nuclear weapons. It's going to keep them, keep refining them. 
and now it's trying to bolster the infrastructure around the communications command and control to ensure that they remain an effective deterrent against possible intervention from the United States, South Korea, and others. The second takeaway is that internal security and control continues to be a top priority for Kim Jong-un. Again, I think the COVID-19 crisis has made this very clear. Kim has put the country on lockdown, uh, which wasn't difficult maybe for North Korea compared to some countries, but he's put it on lockdown. He's been very clear about closing the borders. Only now is some border opening with China uh, occurring. Um, but at the same time, he's continued purges and factionalism, political schism, a potential military coup, economic failure, ideological contamination, all of those challenges I mentioned earlier have to still weigh on Kim Jong-un's mind. He worries about these issues. It's why he controls information, controls uh, the flow of people, controls the flow of ideas uh, in his tyrannical government, and why the Organization and Guidance Department, OGD, remains the part of the state that sees and knows everything, and why it's still important for his regime. I think the third takeaway for me is that notwithstanding the Biden administration's initial pronouncement that denuclearization will remain a central goal, especially the long-term objective of U.S. policy, as a near-term goal, it's unrealistic for U.S. diplomatic efforts. And it's possible to reconcile these two ideas. Um, it's possible to say my long-term goal is to achieve a denuclearized Korean peninsula in North Korea without nuclear weapons, but at the same time to recognize that over the next four years, I need to try to find diplomatic ways forward. And those diplomatic ways forward are likely to focus more on risk reduction, frankly, um, possibly things that could also be construed as arms control. The problem here is that it's gonna be very difficult to offer benefits and reward North Korea for taking actions that don't tangibly set back their nuclear and missile programs, especially those that can do so much damage. The fourth takeaway is that the Kim regime remains relatively more risk tolerant and risk acceptant than the United States and South Korea. So he doesn't have to have an appetite hankering for war. He just has to be willing to take greater risk uh, than the United States and South Korea. Um, and North Korea has pursued an evolving variety of political military campaigns involving the use or threat of force, knowing exactly how to find those red lines. Um, and that's why in the Korean War, they missed the big red line that yes, there would be a major war ensuing if they launched a conventional attack, that's what happened. Um, they sought with the uh, Blue House raid um, and the season of the Pueblo, they didn't get attacked right away, but the US RK alliance didn't go away. In fact, it got stronger over time. They saw with Operation Paul Bunyan, uh, in fact, the willingness of the United States and the RK to mobilize all the way up to DEFCON 3 with the US nuclear weapons um, while they achieved their specific mission of clearing the uh, demilitarized zone of a tree that was obscuring uh, the ability to observe North Korean movements on the DMZ. Um, so there has been a, a, a series of lessons that have been learned uh, or taught. It doesn't mean they're permanent uh, with the next crisis, but they're certainly part of the playbook and part of the history and knowledge of both the Korean People's Army and of the Kim regime. I think the fifth point here is that the Biden administration 
does still have to focus on several objectives at the same time. Long-term denuclearization, sure, but short-term ensuring stability on the peninsula. When I think about the Office of the Director of National Intelligence uh, threat assessment that was just issued, several points stuck, stuck out uh, right away. One of them is uh, that, of course, the China issue was loomed as the largest challenge. But even the China challenge was part of a cascading complex set of challenges that were state actors, non-state actors, ecological, technological change um, that make any one issue, including North Korea, um, too much of a luxury to be able to have exclusive focus. So we have to be able to manage a North Korean challenge, especially a North Korea that is self-deterred from actually using the weapons that it's acquiring with how much risk we're willing to take. So if we can find mechanisms to try to reduce risk, that might be at least a modest step forward. In the meantime, the better actions may be to strengthen the US ROK alliance and to take advantage of this newfound opportunity to strengthen things like trilateral cooperation among South Korea, Japan, and the United States. I think though I'd rather hear from you, the audience, and your questions. And so I'm gonna stop here. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Dr. Cronin, for such an insightful lecture, and we'll begin the Q&A session. So if you have questions, please type them in in the Q&A chat box. So the first question is, given North Korea's unstable position on nuclear weapons and the threat it poses to the U.S., how does the relationship between China and North Korea fit into the strategic vision the U.S. is trying to implement in the Indo-Pacific? China obviously has a huge role to play uh, with its neighbor, North Korea, and on the Korean Peninsula, given uh, the fact that China is such a, a looming power these days. And for the United States, trying to figure out what the overarching relationship is between the United States and China is still also under review. And it's a much thornier set of questions, frankly, than the North Korean policy review, I would add. Um, I think what we've seen out of the Biden administration has been uh, to try to be pragmatic and see if we can um, be more competitive with China, um, but not to close down the opportunities for cooperation. The problem with that is that China doesn't seem to be interested in these single lanes of dialogue like North Korea or climate change. They first want to discipline the Biden administration into understanding the correct view of US-China relations and the correct respect that should be accorded to, uh, to Beijing. And so we saw that on display in Anchorage, Alaska, when we had Secretary Blinken and National Security Advisor um, Sullivan meet with um, Wang Yi, the foreign minister, and Yang Jiechi, the counselor. Um, and there were some harsh words exchanged in public uh, before they went in private and had, had some somewhat more cordial discussions, but nonetheless tense competitive discussions that didn't lead to an automatic set of working groups or processes to try to deal with problems like North Korea. So the, the short answer to the, this difficult question is that China needs to be part of this uh, challenge. Um, China does have a role to play. Biden administration is not going to assume that China is going to want to play just our positive role. Um, and uh, we recognize that China may want to try to tie cooperation in North Korea to cooperation in other areas. And I think the Biden administration is gonna be reluctant to make concessions in other areas, unless there are areas that are innocuous, like some potential economic issues maybe 
would be easier than say back off Taiwan and then we'll help you on, on North Korea. They're not going to do that. They've made clear they're not going to do that. So um, nonetheless, I guess last positive idea here on China would be that it may be that the US, Japan and Korea could stand up and invite China, invite Russia in fact, um, to five party talks and talk about uh, how do we approach the North Korean problem. So at least engage in dialogue uh, with China on these issues. That would be a starting point for keeping the diplomacy alive and seeing what's possible. Don't foreclose those opportunities uh, until you've tested them, but don't expect too much. Thank you. And the next question is from an, IW an IWP professor. How critical is China's role in the future of the Koreas? Well, you know, that's um, uh, how important is China to uh, Asia? I mean, how important is China to anything? It's, 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 it's vital. It's very important. It's going to be part of it uh, in terms of the future. It's, um, it's inseparable. But more practically speaking, and maybe trying to refine the question a bit, um, how um, significant will North Korea policy be for Xi Jinping? in terms of his agenda. Um, and here I think Xi Jinping, as he heads toward a party Congress in 2022, and of course has to go through the centenary celebration of the CCP this, this summer, uh, 100th anniversary of the, of the Communist Party, um, he is um, cautious. He wants stability on his border. Um, so I think at least in the short term, um, Beijing wants to be a positive force for stability uh, with North Korea, but at the same time, going back to the disciplining of the Biden administration, that is teaching the Biden administration the correct approach to, to Beijing, um, there's going to be limited uh, ability for cooperation unless China becomes a little more accommodating toward compartmentalizing some of these issues and saying, all right, we're, we're willing to sit down and start talking about how to preserve stability together in North Korea, because we are worried about not just potential economic decline, humanitarian decline, health problems in North Korea, but also accidents, inadvertent escalation. We do need to work on these issues together. The Chinese have shown interest in these issues in the past. They are interested in them. I think there's room for this, um, but China does want to, again, a big point here, stepping back on the question, China wants to make sure that any action on the Korean Peninsula writ large, but especially in North Korea, has to at least be passed through Beijing for a chop on, on the decision from their viewpoint. And I think that's what they're going to want to insist on. Thank you. And we have another question from a different IWP professor. Thank you, Dr. Croning, for an interesting presentation. You mentioned that Kim Jong-un has more to fear from internal threats than those posed by external factors. Can you elaborate a bit more? Are there people within the ruling elite who pose an imminent threat? Well, there are a couple of reasons why I say this, and I have people like Andre Lankov, uh, you know, agrees with this idea, and I agree with him, that the internal security problem is bigger than we understand and appreciate. Um, but because we can't see it, um, and we can see only the external concerns about nuclear weapons, uh, it looks like the nuclear weapons and intervention are bigger issues. The reason I say it's it should be a bigger threat to the Kim regime is because I understand the lack of appetite for a regime change policy on the part of the United States. That might have been thinkable 30 years ago, 
Um, you know, and in fact, I was advising uh, General Shalikashvili, um, uh, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff back during the original nuclear crisis. And there was very serious consideration, not so much to regime change, but to a decapitation strike, at least on the Yangbyon nuclear reactor. But that could have escalated and that could have forced the hand of the United States and the RK alliance. It's, it's unthinkable to, to imagine that today, unless, of course, North Korea starts a war. Um, but, but assuming I'm correct that North Korea doesn't want to start a war, um, it only wants to advance its interest of building its arsenal and uh, breaking the sanctions regime. Um, and it's willing to take risks to do that, but it doesn't actually want to trip a war. Um, therefore, the actual threat of military intervention against North Korea, they do have nuclear weapons after all, even if we don't accept them as a nuclear weapon state, they can do a lot of damage to Seoul even without nuclear weapons, they can do a lot of damage to the region. Um, there's a very small chance that the United States would actually intervene for regime change. That means that the threats that are more likely to obtain for the Kim regime are internal. And being a dictatorship uh, of long standing, <laughs> um, having an economy of, uh, of, of great weakness, having possible disease at the same time, um, having dashed expectations, having a population that may no longer be enamored of just one more nuclear weapon if, there's, if half the population is starving, these issues uh, could eventually weigh heavily on um, a range of internal threats that I've written about. We don't know is the short answer. I know the, the, the question's a good one, but the question is asking for information that we just don't have the information for. I mentioned two of the more well-known publicly um, discussed uh, sort of threats against the Kim regime. Um, but both of them are still based on certain speculation because um, most of that information remains either classified or even outside the boundaries of intelligence agencies because they deal with very, very sensitive matters inside the DPRK. And point number one is DPRK, North Korea, controls information um, like it's gold. Thank you. And the next question is, can Red China keep North Korea on a leash and do the want to? That is, is she, uh, the Chinese president, cautious about North Korea or is that merely a pose? Is China in reality using Kim's belligerence to keep the USA and allies preoccupied in, and in check? Thank you. Yeah, I think North Korea is useful for China's policy in a number of ways. And China likes an omnidirectional policy, so they don't want to be only uh, single uh, use policies. They'd like to be able to use um, all of their instruments of power in all relations, in this case with North Korea, for a range of issues. China is genuinely concerned and with good reason uh, about stability on its border. Um, there is, uh, you know, the potential for nuclear war uh, could come about because of its sort of unstable neighbor and poor neighbor in North Korea. So they should be concerned about that. Um, China would like to keep in the United States down and push the United States out of the Indo-Pacific in general. Um, there's no doubt about that. And so if it can restore the so-called lips and teeth alliance between North Korea and China uh, and find other ways to um, pressure the pressure the United States to, to kind of back off. Uh, it will certainly do that as well. Um, but while China doesn't want to see North Korea use force and start a conflict, they're not eager to rush toward denuclearization either. Um, I, you know, the general assumption remains that the Chinese would like to see 
a, a denuclearized Korean Peninsula as well. And there's every reason to believe that in general and in principle. The problem is there are too many short-term objectives that would impede that. They don't want to cooperate with the United States enough to make that happen. They don't want to destabilize the Kim regime enough to make that possibly happen. They don't want to risk conflict, in other words, on their border. So China has to play carefully with the North Korean issues. Um, but but I go back to the, the principle that Beijing does not want anything to happen on the peninsula that is either a surprise to them or that happens without them having some kind of a heavy voice in the process. Thank you. And the next question is, do you consider that denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, or at least North Korean disarmament, will ever be possible? After risk reduction measures, what steps might North Korea agree to that would lead towards denuclearization? Well, it's a matter of uh, the idea of peaceful coexistence eventually allowing um, some kind of stability to happen over time. And that long-term stability over time leads to maybe openness, connectivity, exchanges that normalize relationship. So even if you don't trust your neighbor still decades from now, um, maybe they have agreed to a denuclearization agreement. But I don't think that we have to worry about rushing to eliminate all those nuclear weapons because it's, it's impossible to do it at the moment. It would be impossible to verify it as well. Um, but we certainly want to make sure that we minimize the risk of nuclear weapons being used. We certainly want to minimize the risk of inadvertent military escalation, even conventional on a large scale, especially against undefended populations like the large one in Seoul. So we do have every reason to try to uh, promote sensible, uh, easy to follow um, risk reduction measures. You know, when the, the summit between um, Trump and Kim occurred, um, you know, and in the run-up to that, with the the um, at the DMZ, we were having problems even just communicating right there at the DMZ still with North Korea. There's such rudimentary uh, hotline, essentially the the phone, and they'd come out with a megaphone to kind of deliver the message to the North Koreans. Um, so we, we we have a long way to go before we sort of exhaust the kind of risk reduction measures that might be useful. And you have to now think about the submarine capabilities of North Korea, just as we did with their many submarine special operations against the Chonan in 2010. There are many operations that could be um, prevented from escalating if if North Korea were willing, if they had the political will to cooperate. And I don't expect there to be a lot of political will, but if we take small steps toward avoiding things that could hurt them, they might be willing to do that, even if they're not willing to abandon the nuclear weapons anytime soon. I wouldn't give up on denuclearization in the long term because it may be that the political environment just changes so fundamentally decades from now. But we shouldn't think about it as some kind of short-term goal that's realistic. Thank you. And the next question is from Mr. Tom McDevitt, chairman of the Washington Times. Uh, thanks very much for this expert overview, Dr. Cronin. My question regards the recent 10,000 leader conference held in Pyongyang recently with party cell leaders. Kim Jong-un painted the picture of a very dire road ahead for the North Korean people. What do you think were the hidden or overt drivers for this meeting and Kim Jong-un's pessimistic expressions? Thank you. It is unusual to hear, uh, you know, this kind of attack come out of Pyongyang, where the narrative is controlled, because the, you know, the narrative should always be you're in paradise, things are getting better, I've got better nuclear weapons than ever. Um, look what we're building. Um, 
I think this sort of reprise of the arduous march kind of uh, sort of rhetoric that we heard during the Great Famine of the 90s, when North Korea was literally falling apart, which is why many South Korean and American analysts thought North Korea might literally have to uh, be toppled um, in a fall apart from within in the, in the mid-90s. It didn't happen. They survived that. Um, so they're very resilient and should not be underestimated. I mean, that's, that's my main point. So despite this rhetoric, don't underestimate North Korea. I don't think this is just a ruse, though. I don't think I don't think this is Kim Jong Un just saying, um, "Oh, poor us! Please bribe, you know, please bring humanitarian aid." I think he is genuinely fearful of um, the sacrifices that are uh, possibly uh, in store for many North Koreans, including members even of the party and the military. So there's this question of how many people in the North Korean elite does he need to satisfy to kind of fence off potential threats to either the party or the military leadership. He has to keep feeding the military to convince them not to topple him, and he has to keep the party elite uh, alive. So he's he's sending them a tough message saying, you're not going to get everything you want. We have a pandemic emergency, even if we don't talk about it. Um, we have an economic uh, crisis because uh, both the pandemic and the failure of the outside world to reduce sanctions from their perspective. Um, and um, he's saying um, there's not going to be an easy way out. So um, be prepared for this to continue for some time. Thank you. We have one more question from the IWP professor. Do you believe that the US goal for complete verifiable, irreversible denuclearization is still feasible, given that North Korea has repeatedly stated that position of possession of nuclear weapons is vital to their survival? not to mention the validation of Kim Jong-un as the supreme leader. Also, do you believe it would be ever, uh, ever be possible for the U.S. to accept North Korea as de facto nuclear power and perhaps negotiate to limit their arsenal? Yeah, this is where you get into the problem that neither North Korea nor the United States wants to accept the premise of the other party. So we don't want to accept North Korea as a de facto nuclear weapon state. Um, it's certainly not a permanent one. So we want to therefore keep open, keep denuclearization at the center of our policy, as the Biden administration has already hinted. Um, and if you're North Korea, you know, you you want the United States to reassure that you are allowed to be a nuclear weapon state. Um, and um, they're asking for something that we're not, be able, we're not going to be able to give them. So um, there were multiple parts to that question. So CBID and whether you could have this complete um, irreversible sort of uh, denuclearization stance, I think, again, as a long-term objective, fine. Um, but it's not a useful um, diplomatic sort of goal in the short term. So it kind of goes to the side. And in my paper, I've argued that it has to not be at the center. But because the administration, the Biden administration's used the word center, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to uh, sort of um, disagree with their argument. It can still be at the center of our policy. It just should not be the first priority of our diplomacy. And I think that's the difference here. So we're not going to accept nuclear weapons um, in North Korea, but we live with them. Um, we are living with them. We have lived with them. We don't know exactly what we're living with because there's no transparency. So one of the confidence building measures here would be to get more transparency on what North Korea ha has um, without accepting them as a nuclear weapons state. Um, and if we can deal with risk reduction measures and give them um, some modicum of stability, Maybe in there, there are new openings for diplomacy for both sides, but neither side can really move to this extreme position of either accepting North Korea's nuclear weapon status 
or the United States backing off um, sort of our goal of denuclearization as, as the long-term goal. Thank you. We got a couple of more interesting questions. The next one is, could China or Russia utilize North Korea as a destabilizing agent in the region in order to cast doubt on the U.S. and its willingness to use military force along the Korean Peninsula, in the South China Sea, or in the Eastern Europe, for example, along the Ukraine border? Um, yes, is the short answer to that. Um, you know, even though I'm describing um, much of the diplomacy of dealing with North Korea, the reality is I've also talked about clandestine operations and um, many of the subversive actions that have been taken on the part of the Korean, North Korean um, sort of ruling elite. Um, and it's entirely possible that either Moscow or Beijing would be capable of triggering um, some kind of episode, trapping the United States, trapping the USROK alliance into something, a crisis that would drive the US and South Korea apart, that would drive the region against the United States, that would lead to an overreaction on the part of the United States. But there are obviously downsides for both Moscow and Beijing to think about trying that. Um, for China, the obvious one we've already talked about, a potential escalation of conflict on the, on the Korean border uh, with China is not in China's interest. Um, so they're gonna be very wary about that. So it would be, it would be very um, contingency specific, situational specific on what they might want to use some kind of spur to uh, embarrass the United States, to have a loss of uh, legitimacy of the United States ROK alliance. Um, Russia might be more risk acceptant than China uh, on the Korean border, if only uh, because of uh, some of the lesser geographical exposure. Um, but at the same time, um, Russia also uh, has its hands full and, and I'm not sure how adept they would be at trying to kind of trap the United States into a problem. The reality is that both China and Russia are big powers. Um, they don't want a small power like North Korea, 25 million people, one of the poorest countries on the planet uh, by per capita income, uh, trapping them into a potential major power conflict. That's a big price to pay for a small gambit that could be a high risk. Thank you, and the next question is, isn't China also worried about DPRK nuclear tests since Kim usually conducts tests during important Chinese meetings? Also, are there ways we can add China DPRK researchers to the discussion since they may have a value-added unique perspective? I'm not sure how I'm supposed to answer the latter part of that question. I mean, what's the, could you repeat that? What's the last part of that question? Also, are there ways we can add China slash DPRK researchers to the discussion since they may have a value added unique perspective? Well, I'm not sure what we're adding them to. I mean, I'm doing my research and I'm telling you uh, what, I'm, what I'm doing. And I've, I've consulted North Korean texts as well as Chinese texts at the same time. But sure, yeah, we ought to be drawing on whatever uh, resources are available from China. Um, and even from North Korea, if possible, my my uh, one uh, sort of effort of, of dealing with North Koreans, though, on research was that they are very reluctant to talk uh, uh, about things that get them into any any area that would be so delicate. Chinese are different and have a lot of different views and a lot of different expertise on these issues and definitely are part of the discussion um, on the first part of that um, question. Um, and I've now forgotten the first part of the question, but it's 
on dealing with getting China to help? I can uh, repeat the first the yes. first part of the question. So the first part of the question is, isn't China also worried about DPRK nuclear tests since Kim usually conducts tests yes. during important Chinese meetings? Sorry, yes, indeed. Um, China has every reason to be worried. And I go back to the point that Xi Jinping wants stability, especially during the next 12 to 18 months. Um, he does not want disruption from his smaller neighbor in Pyongyang, even if he wants a tight relationship with him. Um, the fact that China is courting uh, North Korea these months and recent weeks um, is suggestive of exactly that. North China's doing its homework to make sure that North Korea stays calm and stays stable because these are critical times for um, Xi Jinping internal power. Um, the next sort of transformation of the CCP, the next big moves, um, a time of celebration in terms of uh, moving toward their a great rejuvenation in China dream is, as it's portrayed under the Chinese narrative. So all of these things are much more important than North Korea, and they do not want instability. So if North Korea fires off some Iskander, you know, um, short-range ballistic missiles, as he did recently, um, that's okay. Uh, but if he actually test, launch, uh, test launches the, uh, you know, Hwasong-16 now, super ICBM that was on parade last year, um, or conducts another nuclear test, um, that would be a, a crisis for China. So China has every interest to at least provide some help, um, even if they do it directly with North Korea, in making sure those kind of incidents don't happen, at least in the in the next year or two. Thank you. And the last question for today's event is uh, a second question from Mr. McDevitt regarding China. Uh, Dr. Cronin, what is your assessment of the likelihood of China making a military move on Taiwan and in what time frame? How would this affect stability on the Korean Peninsula? Well, um, you know, it's a good question because Taiwan is um, not only another flashpoint in Asia that really matters, it's probably the number one flashpoint that people worry about. Um, because um, Taiwan is identified as core sovereign security interests of Beijing. Um, there's a great deal of nationalism involved in China right now as we go through the centenary of the Communist Party and up to the Party Congress next year. Um, Xi Jinping has, has sort of elevated uh, Chinese confidence, even wolf warrior diplomacy. He's threatened um, Japan and the United States, in effect, not to gang up on uh, on on China and against uh, China's interests over Taiwan. Um, and there's been this back and forth of very intensified sort of uh, steps and rhetoric going on between Beijing and the United States um, over Taiwan. So there's good reason to worry about a military scenario, but from my perspective, that's not what China's trying to do. China's trying to intimidate us, trying to control the narrative over how we can talk about Taiwan, how we can treat Taiwan, how we can deal with Taiwan. They wanna make sure there's no regression from the one China policy, as we would call it. They would call it the one China principle from their perspective. Um, and they um, want to make sure that the United States doesn't encourage Taiwan's independence. Um, so they're trying to use every tool in the kit, including psychology, the law, economic coercion, military intimidation, to try to stop any movement away from unification with China versus uh, independence of Taiwan. Um, so 
when would they uh, uh, you know, use force in that scenario? Well, there are a lot of factors, so it's impossible to predict. We've obviously heard the um, uh, commander of the US Indo-Pacific Command, Phil Davidson, recently make great headlines over the idea that over the next five or six years, this could be the time when China acts because China may decide, you know what, not only does this issue matter to us so much, but we actually think we have the capability to use military force without losing a conflict and maybe, maybe in fact winning it very quickly, a short, swift war. So the idea would be uh, on the timing of that is if we let them have an opportunity to win a short, swift war over Taiwan, then it could happen sooner rather than later. If on the other hand, Taiwan is serious about its self-defense, if we are not serious about trying to um, create a new policy that will be a complete provocation to China in terms of abandoning the one China policy. But if we stay strong in the region and work with allies and partners and help Taiwan with its economic space and international space and political space, um, and I've got ideas on all of those things, I think we can forestall that date and keep pushing it out into the future so that maybe it never happens. Thank you, Dr. Cronin, for uh, such an insightful presentation. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, the AILS will have upcoming events throughout summer and the fall. So please check out the IWP uh, events website. And again, thank you, everyone, for, um, for joining us. And this concludes our presentation today. Thank you.